Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me just bring greetings from the churches that make up the Pillar Network. There's now about 450 churches in 33 countries. Uh, You guys have been a wonderful part of that work to start and strengthen churches all over the world. Just know that your impact from Winston-Salem is having an impact all over the world. Uh, It's also just a joy to be here with, with your pastor, Alex, and his wife, Jenna. They have become dear friends to me, really building over the last few years, and so it's a joy uh, to be here at this church that I hear so many wonderful reports about, and then just to have the privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. It's a privilege that I don't take lightly, uh, and so I'm so thankful to be here. Uh, as, uh, as I think about who, who I am and sort of succinctly what I want to be about in the world, I, I, I say this often, I want to be about Christ, His church, and His commission. Because I grew up Southern Baptist, I had to alliterate my life purpose. But I want to be about Christ, His church, and His commission. And that's why I love what I get to do at Pillar. I, I, I love uh, to be a part of His work in the world. Christ has chosen His church as His vehicle to accomplish His commission in the world. The, the starting and strengthening of churches is the means by which uh, God is accomplishing the Great Commission through His people. And it's been like this uh, from the beginning. From the beginning, God has set His affections upon a people so that through that people, people will know his ways throughout the entire world. That from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, then to places like Winston-Salem, literally the, truly the ends of the earth, people would know his ways. I'm not saying Winston-Salem is the ends of the earth. I'm saying you're, you're near some places that are the ends of the earth, though. And so it's a joy to be here. And the reason I think I want to say that my life is about those three things is because I think those three things, if you're committed to that, you can have an eternal impact in this world. I think those are the three things that that are going to last. And and if you're committed to those things, the people that come in contact with you, you can have eternal impact in their life. And so this morning, I simply want to remind you of what fuels that work, okay? Sort of what what is behind that or what undergirds that sort of work, the the mission that God has given us to to love his son with with our whole being, to be a part of his church, and then to be a part of his Commission. And so a good reminder to fuel that passion, to fuel those sort of passions, is that the gospel is not just applied to me personally, but the gospel is also applied to the church corporately, and then the gospel is applied to the nations globally. So with that in mind, this morning from John chapter 4, we're going to look at what may be a familiar narrative in the scriptures. Even if you're here and you didn't grow up in the church, you may have heard about the woman at the well. We're going to find this woman who is consumed with things that she thinks are important, consumed with things she thinks will satisfy her. But as we're going to see, her eyes are on the temporary. Her eyes are on things, her eyes are dominated by things that are below rather than the things that are above. And and part of the problem with well-known narratives is that we can tend to misunderstand them or just to know them in a general way without fully knowing what is going on in the text. And I, I don't want that to be the case with this one. As brothers and sisters, the text we're going to open is a wonderful text. It's a text that's going to highlight some very important themes, themes such as the global mission of our Messiah, but also within that global mission, the personal invitation he makes to sinners like us. It's going to highlight his humility. It's going to highlight his intentionality with the broken. It's going to highlight what humanity needs most, and it's going to do that by focusing in on our most basic need, by focusing in on our need for water. This passage will help us see our tendency, even if we don't realize it, even though we have already heard a prayer pointing these things out, that our lives can so often be dominated 
by the things that are temporal rather than the things that are eternal. How there's this temptation to fill our lives with things that we think will satisfy us, and yet they will never truly satisfy us. And yet it's going to do that, giving us a glimpse of the final words, some of the final words of Scripture, that indeed we can find water that produces in us life that is truly life. So I want to turn our attention to the text. Our, our time will be John 4, 1 through 26, but just to set the stage, I'm going to read a few verses of chapter 3 to set the context. And then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help this morning. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 of chapter 3. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into that city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Let's pray. Father, now as our attention turns to the book, Father, I ask that you would help us. Father, would you help me, a sinner, to teach your word clearly for the good of your people? Father, for the sake of someone here who may not yet be a believer, but Father, ultimately for the glory of your name. So Father, now would you help us? Father, would you please sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. Father, my prayer is that the word would speed ahead. Father, we desire your glory, so we need your help. So help us now to receive your word like we've received food. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two questions to help us consider this text. And and the first one is this. What what truly satisfies you? Or even just maybe what makes you happy, right? I asked my youngest nieces this question, what makes you happy? And they said, music and warm cookies. (laughs) What makes you happy? But maybe even more than that, what, what truly satisfies you? What are, what are the sort of things that you think, if I get this, I will be satisfied? On this deeper level, what brings happiness, joy, fulfillment? You know, good food, great job, good friends, wonderful family, respect, approval. Deep down, what are the sort of things you go to bed dreaming of and wake up in the morning thinking about? And then a second question that's connected What sort of things are so important to you that you take great initiative to get them? You know, my dad and three brothers are all in ministry, so often if I preach a text, I'll I'll take their notes and see what they've done with the passage. And and my youngest brother had an illustration for initiative that I found quite offensive when I read his John 4 uh, sermon because he told his congregation outside of Atlanta, who I don't know at all, that me, his oldest brother, takes great initiative to get to the front of the line at the Thanksgiving dinner. 
I mean, maybe I'm guilty. That gravy's not going to eat itself. But what sort of things are so important to you that you will be energized about them, that you will show initiative towards them? The text before us this morning highlights one key truth, which I think then leads to one particular application in light of that truth. John 4 declares for us that Jesus alone can satisfy the soul. Jesus alone can give us eternal purpose. And in light of that great news, we should take great initiative to know that love, to experience that love with the brothers and sisters in the church, and then to share that love with our neighbors and the nations around us. Indeed, this passage is going to show us something that the early church father Augustine would say, that our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in God. But then in light of that great need and the great gift that we've been given to meet that need, we who have been redeemed by the king, given what we need most, are now to be those who know that love, experience that love, and then share that love. Or you may say it like this, just for the setting of the story. We who have been blessed to drink deeply from this well of grace should be now those who take buckets of that living water everywhere, saying to people, you need to come get in on this. Now, here's the context before us this morning. We have just come from Jesus meeting by night with the religious leader Nicodemus. We have just heard his great declaration in John 3, 16, and we have seen him be rightly exalted by his forerunner, John the baptizer. And now we turn to this intriguing scene, one in which our Lord will leave the crowds. He will leave them for those who are despised by Israel. But there's more going on than meets the eye. This this text gives us a glimpse of, of what he will later say in Acts chapter 1-8. It gives us a glimpse of Acts chapter 8 as well, that the progress of the gospel, that the, the mission of our Messiah will one day make its way from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then from there to the ends of the earth. As the Samaritans, interestingly given the vocabulary of this passage, will receive the Spirit, giving evidence that our Messiah is not some sort of tribal leader, he is a global king. And now in this narrative, we come to a passage where he's going to initiate a conversation about this new birth, this birth that he has talked to Nicodemus about. He's going to initiate a conversation about living water with somebody who is so much different than Nicodemus. In fact, in the eyes of most, he's going to go from somebody who's considered a religious somebody to somebody who's considered a cultural nobody. And notice, if you will, four things about Jesus from this text as he initiates this conversation with this woman about her deepest need. We're going to see in the text Jesus' initiation, then we're going to see his invitation, next we'll see his confrontation, and finally we'll see Jesus' identification. First, we see his initiation. Look again at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. We begin with Jesus departing the religious leader, and interestingly, as his reputation grows, as the crowd builds, Jesus leaves. And we're not fully told why he leaves why, you know, when the crowd is built. We do know, if we know the rest of the story, his, his, his final hour has not yet come. But we also see there's this divine appointment that awaits him. In one way, in this text, we see the picture of Jesus as the great shepherd. Because Jesus is leaving the 99 for the one. And it's not just anyone, as we will see. Jesus goes from the crowds to this one. 
He goes from a man of high standing to a woman of low standing, a Samaritan, in fact. But one thing is true that we all must understand at the outset this morning. The religious leader Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman have the same eternal need. When it comes to our greatest need, we are all on equal footing. And the text indicates he had to pass through Samaria, which emphasizes the intentionality of his mission. And I say intentionality because most Jews would have done anything they could to avoid any route that would take them through Samaria, even if it meant they had to go the long way around. And this is because Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, they viewed the Samaritans as racial and spiritual half-breeds. They would teach their children to pray things like this. Father, please bless mommy and daddy, and in the resurrection, please forget the Samaritans. And yet Jesus goes through a place that other Jews despise to give his disciples, and by extension to give us, a glimpse of his global mission. Paul will pick this language up in Ephesians 2, right, later on. Jesus came not just for the Jews. He came for those alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He came for those who were strangers to the covenants of promise. And nobody would have been more alienated And nobody would have been more a stranger to the covenants of promise than this adulterous Samaritan woman. He had to pass through Samaria so that he could forever impact this one woman and then through her impact this entire town. And it's a significant town, right? At the center of it is a well that was given to them by Israel's name bearer, given to them by Jacob. And it's at this well at noonday that Jesus, wearied from his travel, sits down for some water. And we, we learn something very crucial here, right? We get a picture of Jesus' humanity. Jesus really was tired. Jesus really was thirsty. It's important for us to consider, as we think about Jesus alone being the one who can satisfy, Jesus alone being the one who can save, it is important for us to understand just how magnificent and important the incarnation is. The Cappadocian fathers would speak of it this way, on the importance of the incarnation. They would just simply say this, that which he did not assume he could not redeem. Or that which he did not assume he could not heal. Meaning, if he was not fully and truly human, if he had not, as we've already read, taken on flesh and and dwelt among us, had he not become like us in every way, he would not have been able to save humanity and give us what we need most. And now the word who has become flesh sits down in just the flow of everyday life, and he says to this woman, give me a drink. And look at verse 9. We see the second part of the text and her response in Jesus' invitation. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. The woman is taken aback by Jesus' initiation. She's taken aback by his request. And that's because she understands just what a break from social norm this is. And it's, again, if we've grown up in the church, it's important for us to remember what's happening here. This woman has never read John 3.16. She has no idea who he is. 
from her way of thinking, she, she just comes upon this person. Like nowadays, sports, uh, sports casters call just mediocre players, they call them a jag, just a guy. In her mind, she walks up on just a guy, and it's a Jewish guy at that. She's rightfully shocked at the dynamics that are playing out. For she is a woman, and she is a Samaritan woman, and even more than that, she has come at midday, meaning she is an outcast who has to come to the well at the hottest part of the day so that she can be by herself. And Jewish men and Samaritan outcasts just did not interact. And even more than that, the Jews believed if they shared a cup with a Samaritan person, they would become ceremonially unclean. Brothers and sisters, take a minute just to realize what is going on here. Realize how stunning and marvelous this is. God in the flesh. Again, we've already read it. The one who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is just as happy to be in the presence of this Pharisee stalwart as he is this Samaritan outcast. It's an incredible act of humility. It's an amazing demonstration of his love. And Jesus shows that same initiating love to us. We learn a couple things here in the text. It's interesting from his example. We we see that Jesus takes initiative to extend this invitation and just the flow of everyday life. In one sense, it's like being at at work. He's, He's just at the water cooler. And he's just initiating this conversation. But even more than that, he takes initiative to move towards others that, uh, to move towards somebody that others would despise. He's undeterred by the norms of society. And maybe for our purposes this morning, it may be important to see this by way of illustration. Jesus seems to take just as much initiative to be in the presence of somebody like, let's just say, Michael Jordan, as he would to be in the presence of a single mom down the street who nobody knows. So he says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11 reveals that she's puzzled by the invitation. How can Jesus offer her water? He's alone. He has no bucket. The well is deep. And so she responds with questions which begin to reveal that there is more going on. And in verse 13, Jesus subtly points out how insufficient even their father Jacob is. He says, if you drink of this water, you will be thirsty again. Yes, Jacob provided this well, and this well has provided a temporary source of life, but it can only sustain life and bring satisfaction for so long. And you see, this gets at the heart of true satisfaction. That's what Jesus is trying to help her see. It's a redirecting of focus from things that meet our temporary needs to things that meet our eternal necessities. So Jesus speaks to her of water she knows not of, water that will be everlasting water, but she just doesn't get it. And we see that in verse 15 because she says, give me this water. She's likely thinking it would be great not to have to come back here at noon every day under the Middle Eastern sun. She's so wrapped up with what is before her. She's so wrapped up in what she can see. Her eyes are on the temporal with little or no regard for the eternal. But the problem, brothers and sisters, is so much, so many times, so are we. We are consumed with things that will not last more than we are consumed with the things of eternity. It's no wonder that so often cable news and social media and the pages of the internet draw us more than the pages of Scripture. And it's important, yes, some of the temporary things that we give attention to, they matter a lot. They're very important. 
but they so often dominate our times in ways that the things of eternity just do not do. She does not yet get it. So Jesus will now get to the heart of the matter as he will now bring up and deal with her sin, which leads us to the third part in Jesus's confrontation. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In order to help her understand her real need, Jesus shakes everything up. And so Jesus says to her, go get your husband. Remember, Jesus knows why she is alone at midday under the hot Middle Eastern sun. Jesus knows who she is. Jesus knows what she has done. Jesus knows she's a sinner. And yet the good news for us is that a sinner is a great candidate for living water. The Puritan Thomas Watson says it like this, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. But the fact that Jesus knows who she is makes this invitation, makes this initiation, and even this confrontation all the more lovely, all the more gracious. See, brothers and sisters, it's something for us to do something for another human being just out of the common grace of being fellow humans. It is an altogether different kind of thing for him to know us in the deepest aspects of who we are and still act with initiating grace anyways. Jesus puts his finger here on something deeper than our need for water. As great as that is, he, he's, he's drawing this out. He's trying to help her see how she has tried to fill those deepest longings of her heart. She has done so with five broken relationships, and she is still at it with a sixth. She has filled her life trying to find satisfaction, trying to find joy, trying to find worth in the arms of men, and that will never satisfy she is living with a deep thirst, but it is a thirst that is not for physical water. And yet the well she keeps going to, to meet that need, is a well that will always and ultimately run dry. And yet that's not just true of a Samaritan woman in the first century. It is true of us in the 21st century. We all look for things that will bring us joy, that will satisfy us, that will bring us worth. A new job, more notoriety, more influence, a, a perfect and feeling, you know, a perfect looking family, a new relationship, images on a screen, text messages that may electrify for a time. We think if I can just have this or if I can just get that, I will be truly happy, I will be truly satisfied. We go from thing to thing to thing, and the truth is we are still thirsty and we will thirst again. C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it in the screw tape letters an ever increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And the struggle is there is still a problem and a temptation to this even if we are Christians. For how often is our mentality something like this? I need Jesus plus this. Right? And even if we fill that blank in with good, good things, we've actually moved into the realm of unbelief. If I need Jesus plus a healthy family. I, I need Jesus plus a spouse. I need Jesus plus a great job. I need Jesus plus, plus, plus. These are all things that if we view them as our ultimate need, we will still be thirsty and we will thirst again. Jesus cuts to the quick. He goes right at the main thing she thinks will satisfy her. And he does so in essence by saying, go get your water. 
Go get your sixth man. Go get what you think will fix your deepest longings. And I read 19 and 20 in this intentionally because he obviously upends her, right? She's shaken up by this because she goes from calling him a Jew to now calling him a prophet. And I don't know if she's doing this because she's trying to divert his attention to what he's talked about or if she's truly interested. Because if somebody revealed something like that to me, I would be interested. But she turns the conversation to worship, which is an important topic when our sin is revealed. It's an important topic when our misplaced affections are exposed because it is directly connected to the object of our worship. She does not understand how good a shift this is in the conversation because our sin flows from having something in that moment other than God as our primary desire because our our true satisfaction will only come about if we have the right object of worship. And Jesus is going to show her she lacks right water because she lacks right worship. The geography of this meeting is incredibly important. Jesus is seated next to a well, but this well is next to this mountain, and it's a perfect place for him to have this conversation because on this mountain is where they worship. It's no accident then that Jesus can now move from confrontation of her sin to his identification as her Savior. That's what we see finally, Jesus' identification. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ when he comes He will tell us all things. And this is a rare treat on this side of the cross. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This Samaritan woman seems to be worried about the where of her worship, and Jesus is concerned with the how. And I hope to show you why. Jesus is telling her that he is inaugurating a new age in which people will not travel to a physical temple in just one city to worship, but people worship God in every place. He does affirm that salvation is coming from the Jews. Paul will later say this to the church at Rome, right? From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But this salvation will produce worship not bound to Jerusalem, and it will produce worship not bound to this mountain. Jesus' work will make this conversation about where obsolete. Twice in the text, we are told that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Notice what Jesus is driving home for her because he's driving it home for us. There is a wrong way to worship, and that is to restrict worship to a place, to this mountain, all the while not worshiping and feeling free to sin in other places. Like, we may be guilty of this. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, you were taught these little hand gestures in vacation Bible school uh, that were a little bit misleading. They went something like this. This is the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. See all the people. Who knows that one? So lots of us were taught that misleading hand gesture. What's the problem with it? Well, this is a building. This is a steeple. The people are the church. What we have inadvertently taught people is that the church was solely something you went to. And so you dress a certain way there, you talk a certain way there, because you know you wouldn't want to say that in church. And we acted like our lives of worship on Sunday were wholly different than our lives of worship on Monday. 
And yes, there is a unique glory to the gathering of the church, but it is not the sum total of who we are. And it certainly doesn't mean that we live lives of worship just a few hours on Sunday. No wonder sometimes people have the wrong view of heaven. They view heaven as this like never ending choir practice. That's not heaven. That's purgatory. No, life in heaven is going to be much like it is here, only in a place where there is always worship and there is no hint of sin. We will certainly sing together, but we also eat together and fellowship together and play things together. I'm hoping we're going to ride dolphins and pterodactyls together. But what we do now as the church throughout the week, not just on Sunday, but as the family that God has given, is just a glimpse of the fellowship and worship we will enjoy on that day. What Jesus is driving at here, what Jesus wants this woman to know and us, is that God is to be her God, not just on the mountain, but also in her bedroom. And this is important. True worship is not bound to a place, but a person. True worship is directed at Jesus. It is spirit-empowered, which spirit-empowered worship happens in the right place, which is everywhere because we are now indwelt by the spirit everywhere we go. For indeed, we live lives of worship, not just on Sundays. We live lives of living sacrifice everywhere we go because we have been indwelt by this spirit. Jesus is direct with her. Jesus is confrontational. And yet he is gentle and compassionate in that directness because he is giving her what she needs most. This entire interaction should be read in light of John 3.16. Jesus is helping her see who she truly is so that she can now see who he truly is. The Samaritan woman, again, gets a rare treat on this side of the cross. Jesus clearly reveals to her who he is. He is the word. He is the light. He is the shepherd. He is the water. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, brothers and sisters, how do we know he can satisfy our deepest longings? How do we know he can satisfy our souls? Jesus is able to quench our deep thirst, our deepest thirst, because Jesus is able to solve our biggest problem. Jesus is able to deal climactically with what puts us at enmity with God. He's able to deal finally with the things that create, create in us longings that will never be satisfied. Because Jesus is able to deal with our sin. You see, brothers and sisters, in John 19, there will be another mountain. And once again at midday, we will find a weary Jesus. And yet this time he is not seated next to a well. This time he is, he is hung up on a cross for everybody to see. And there at Calvary's Hill, 2 Corinthians 5 is so clear to tell us how he is able to deal with our sin because there at the cross, he becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And ironically, as he is dealing with our greatest need, he will say on the cross, I am thirsty. There are so many ironies of the cross, but this, this irony is that the sinless one is standing in the place of the ungodly. That the perfect son of God is standing in the place of sinful men and sinful women willing to become the object of the Father's full wrath against sin. The Old Testament over and over again pictures this wrath as a cup to be drank. So there at the cross, 
wicked people like me, like this Samaritan woman, and like you, Jesus is willing to take the full cup of God's wrath against sin and drink it all down to the very last drop. So much so that he will turn it over at the end and say, it is finished. Dying in the place of sinners, taking on their sin, dealing with the final enemy, that being death itself. And then three days later, he vacates a tomb in vindication, leaving death in his wake. And then in his grace, he applies this work to his people so that they will never thirst again. If you've somehow made your way in here and you're not a Christian this morning, we're so thankful you're here. We want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is able to fulfill the deepest longings of your soul. He's able to deal with your greatest problem, even if you don't know it's your greatest problem. But the only way he will do that is that if you turn away from running after things that will never satisfy you, if you repent of your sin, you cling to him by faith, that is the only way. Just know that the whoever in verse 14 could include you. The gospel is for everyone who believes. Would you please forsake the things that will not truly satisfy you and turn to Christ. Put all of your hope and trust, put your entire life under his lordship. That's what we've done. I want you to know if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm banking everything I am on that truth. And believers, how should we respond to a text like this? Well, certainly those of us who have received this grace should then be those who carry this water everywhere. We should take great initiative in our sharing of the gospel and our talking about who this is, who has, who has come to us, revealed to us everything about ourselves and then loved us so deeply at the cross that we then can't help but turn around and talk about that to others. That's exactly what happens in the life of this woman. But I want to close considering the personal, corporate, and global nature of that love. And to do that, I want to return to the well. And as we close, I want you to put yourself there. And I want you to consider the moment. And you're sitting there. You see this mountain off to the side. And there before you is a man. who knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever said. He knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything that you are. And he still looks you in the eyes and says, come and drink from this water I supply and pay nothing. Now consider that same gracious love shown corporately to the brothers and sisters you sit next to in this pew. Jesus says to sinners like you, some who sometimes frustrate you, some who sometimes you don't get along with, he sets his affections upon them and says, come and drink deeply from this same grace. That's why David would say of the saints in the Old Testament that they are the excellent ones. And then finally, think about this globally. Because this great invitation, this great invitation for the nations, for the lost, to come and enjoy this, this well, this, this invitation of the Messiah now becomes the church's invitation. 
Our brother John writes this on the last pages of the scriptures and listen to what it says. It says this, the spirit and the bride, the spirit and the church say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The astonishing news of the gospel should fuel all of our commitments to him. And just think about the final day. Because on the final day, Christ is going to receive this, this spotless bride. Only spotless because he's made her so. And that bride is going to be made up of men and women like you and me and this Samaritan woman. Indeed, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come and drink from the water of life without price.